seated. King Louis XIV ruled France as absolute monarch for 55 years until his death in 1715. During his life, he ruled the most powerful nation on the European continent. Louis lived in wanton indulgence and unequaled opulence at the Palace of Versailles where 4,000 servants waited upon him daily to do whatever he wanted. In keeping with the prevailing political theory of the day, there are no, there's no day like this anywhere on earth, perhaps some isolated leader somewhere, but we know it, not of it. But in the theory of that day, French subjects were to submit their consciences, their beliefs, their words, their actions, and undying loyalty to their king. And Louis, on his part, loved to remind them, this is a quote, I am the state. He was known as the Sun King, choosing the center of our galaxy as the symbol of his rule. His admirers called him the Grand Monarch. He liked to be called Louis the Great. Indeed, achieving greatness seems to have been Louis' supreme ambition in life. But as with all mortals, there comes a time when our mouths are stopped, our bodies are laid to rest, and our legacies are left for others to decide. Jean-Baptiste Massillon was chosen to deliver the king's funeral oration. He was chosen to address Louis XIV's legacy. Massion was a respected official in the Roman church. He'd frequently preached for Louis at Versailles. He was a soft-spoken, a gentle, articulate preacher with a reputation for convicting sermons, particularly at funerals. But what a daunting task this was. What would the preacher say? How does one eulogize an absolute monarch, widely regarded as the greatest man on the planet. I'm going to leave that question aside for a while. We'll return to it, but we enter onto similar territory as we return to 2 Chronicles 35 today. I invite you there if you're not there already, but 2 Chronicles chapter 35, we encounter here the death of King Josiah. In a manner of speaking, the, book, the books of the Chronicles are a compilation of funeral orations for the kings of Israel. They're not merely that. They are much more, but they are at least that, are they not? Some kings were greater than others, but the legacy of every king is objectively judged by God as having done, that king having done what was right or what was evil. The focus is not, remember, on the righteous standing God imputes to sinners who trust Him for the forgiveness of sins. That's not the idea of He did what was right. 
In the books of the Chronicles, the legacy of the kings is considered in terms of how the king represented God's chosen people and how he led God's chosen people to honor their covenant with God. To that end, he did what was right, or he did evil, serving the gods of this world. So as we come to 2 Chronicles 35 at the end of the chapter, how would you eulogize King Josiah if asked to speak at his funeral? Well, you know we've already gotten a start, don't we? Right from the beginning, chapter 34, verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord has already spoken. Josiah was a man who led the nation rightly to God, who honored the Lord in his life. But how great was Josiah? How should he be eulogized? What legacy did he leave? Now, this is obviously far more than an academic question. And I think for those that are awake and you're thinking through this, you've already begun to track that way, haven't you? Because we know there is coming a day when our tongues will be stopped and our bodies will be laid to rest. And our legacy is left for others to decide. Funerals serve as stark reminders of our mortality. They also remind us of our final accounting before God and man. We leave a story behind. Ultimately, this narrative recording the last acts of Josiah's life and the public response to his death is recorded to teach each of us to walk wisely and faithfully with our Lord. Beginning at verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 35, we find Josiah's death in battle depicted for us here. And then we find the latter half of this section, the response to his death. But the details of that death, beginning with this phrase in verse 20, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple. Now that might seem like an innocuous phrase. It doesn't really mean a whole lot, but just creating some transition. But in fact, this transitional phrase is extremely important. It reminds us, uh, reminds us of Josiah's faithfulness to the Lord in cleansing the land, in restoring true worship at the temple. But the phrase looms even larger when we consider that the books of Chronicles highlight the rule of five kings, all of whom supported God's temple in some way. We have the stories of King David and Solomon take up about 40% of the text of these books. Asa and Hezekiah are the other two kings along here with Josiah. With zeal for the Lord and His glory, David and Solomon are pictured by the chronicler as magnifying God by initiating, by funding, supplying, designing, building, servicing, and dedicating God's temple. Remember, the book is written to those who are coming back to the land. And there is no temple. So how will they respond the chronicler seeks to inspire them with David and Solomon in this effort that they put forward concerning the temple of God. And so, as the, as the books unfold, we can see that the chronicles present these kings, David and Solomon, such that the other kings of Judah are measured against them. 
and particularly with these five kings where there is reference to the temple of God, to say that Josiah prepared the temple is not a throwaway phrase. It is to say that Josiah was among the greatest of the kings of God's people. He measures in the discussion with David, with Solomon. And so it is a phrase that really should jump off the page as we read these two books and come to understand how they're put together. Coupled with 35.18, Josiah is included among the greatest of the kings of Judah's history because of his faithfulness to the Lord. We read there in verse 18 of chapter 35, no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. That's jumping right over David and Solomon. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. That phrase seems to be put in there for the person who objects and go, really? All of Judah with the priests and the Levites, all of Israel were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem celebrating this Passover. This king celebrated Passover and this king prepared the temple. He cleansed it. He returned it back to the service of the Lord. He was indeed a great king. That this phrase comes across after all of this is pointing to the faithful deeds of Josiah. After distinguishing himself by seeking the Lord, honoring God's revealed word, reestablishing Passover, cleansing the temple, preparing it no longer as a place of pagan worship, but restoring it to the true worship of God in Israel. After all of that, Verse 20, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. If this was a movie score, here you would cue the intense, anxious, creepy music. What on earth does Necho from Egypt have to do with Josiah of Israel? What's going on here? Who cares if Nico is advancing on Carchemish? Shouldn't affect Israel, right? Well, let me discuss here for a moment the political scene and what is taking place. History helps us here. Archaeology helps us here. In fact, even the battle that will be described, there's archaeological evidence of it in the Promised Land today. If you can acquaint yourself, and I'll uh, point this direction since I'm right-handed and it's easier, But uh, this is the realm of Egypt, of course, but all of this being the Assyrian Empire, what Assyria controlled, kind of measured out by these these lines here, this being desert. Anybody could have that that wanted it. But uh, this is the Assyrian Empire, and we have the pharaoh of Egypt making his way up to Carchemish. What is going on here? What is taking place? The Assyrian Empire was crumbling. Five years earlier, the Babylonians had begun to kick back. Whoops. They had begun to kick back from Babylon, and they defeated Ashur. Then they pushed the Assyrians to Nineveh, their capital, and captured it. Then they pressed them to Haran, and they pushed them away from there. So the Babylonians were delivering blow after blow after blow. Assyrian king Ashur-Ubalat retreating to Haran... 
Here, King Nabopolassar from Babylon sets Assyria down yet again. The empire is crumbling. And the picture that I get with this, it's like, it's like an old boxing champ that has never lost a fight. He's knocked everybody out. But he's suddenly gotten into the ring with a young, powerful contender who has nothing to lose. And this contender delivers a series of heavy blows that send Assyria reeling, grasping for the ropes, gasping for air. And so here they are up at Carchemish, having, having moved this way to the west, away from Babylon's surge, and they try to set up shop here in Carchemish and cobble together whatever they can that's left of an empire. And as you're standing back and looking at this, it doesn't take a lot of insight to conclude that Babylon is the new alpha male in the room. And Egypt decided, this is my time to stop them. So Egypt's newly crowned pharaoh, Necho II, determined to unite with the serious king Ashur-Ubalat against Babylon's crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, at Carchemish. Here is where Egypt says, I will defeat Babylon with the aid of Assyria that is crumbling, and Egypt will be king of the hill. The simple thinking that's taking place here. We read in the text of Scripture that Josiah went out to meet him. Now this makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Let's add to that sense. So back up here on this map, moving from Egypt up to Carchemish, how do you get there? Well, Egypt has learned one thing. They don't like mixing their armies with water, right? And they haven't developed a great, uh, a great fleet, a navy. And so there's only one way up there. You're not going to go through the desert. You're not going to go by sea. You're going to go right along the coastal plain on the way up to Carchemish. But on that coastal plain, remember, there is a pass an area where you must pass through a mountain range. It's a low-lying mountain range, but it's pretty substantial. So coming up this coastal plain, there is that center pass called the Megiddo Pass through these mountains, and this isn't the whole pass, isn't this long, but it would enter into this Jezreel Valley, this flat valley. So Nico is marching up with his armies, entering down now narrowed through this pass in this mountain range to get onto this flat area. Why? Just because it allows for quick access northward to Carchemish. On this ridge, Josiah moves from the, ten, from the capital of Jerusalem along this ridge, comes into the valley at the Megiddo Pass and says, you're not moving. And stands right in the way of the Pharaoh of Egypt. A picture of that plain, you can see from a mountaintop, from the mountain ridge that you must pass through, you can see the flat plain. This is obviously a great place to march armies, and Nico says, yes, I am getting through this pass, and I'm getting onto that valley to travel northward. So the Megiddo Pass, this uh, middle pass, is a place where Nico decides to go and where Josiah decides to stop him. Now, Nico says and discovers through his scouts that Josiah has done this. So on the other side of the pass is the army 
of, of Judah. Verse 21, but he, that is Nico, then sent envoys to him, that is Josiah, saying, what have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. Would have been a much easier way for him to have attacked Josiah at Jerusalem, passing through the Shvelah to the south. So it's fairly clear that he's not coming after Josiah, but he's just saying, what are you doing? You are in my way. So that's his first point, verse 21. I've not come out against you, but against the house with which I am at war. That is, against Babylon. That's who, I, that's who I'm after here. His second point is very surprising to us, naturally. Verse 21, And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now we know how to read that, right? God doesn't talk to unbelievers. This guy's clearly lying. He just wants Josiah out of the way. God hasn't, doesn't have any part of this, right? Well, not so fast. God does on occasion in Scripture speak with unbelievers. He at times declares his will, and if you think about it long enough, you can probably come up with some examples where that takes place. God spoke to King Abimelech concerning how to treat Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 20. In Matthew 27, the wife of Pilate had a dream warning her that messing with Jesus was a very bad idea. This was truth that came to unbelievers occasionally. It's rare, but it happens. And from everything we can determine, Nico is declaring God's warning that this will not end well for Josiah if he does not permit the Egyptian army to pass. This is God's people that Josiah is leading. But the message is sent to him that in this case, you do not serve the purposes of God by standing in the way of the Egyptian army. Now, we don't know why. The text does not tell us, but Josiah takes his stand between Nico and Carchemish and declares, in effect, you will not pass. Now, let's, for a moment, get into Josiah's thinking here. It's not difficult to do with what we know that God has revealed in his word to the kings of, of Judah. God repeatedly instructs them, do not depend on pagan armies. Do not draw up alliances with those who despise God. Always depend upon me and I will win your battles. This has been drilled into the kings of Judah. Many of them have rejected it. But Josiah certainly understands this. There are powerful armies, Egypt, once Assyria, Babylon, that surround this land and constantly pass up and down through it. So what is Josiah doing? Has he willfully defied God? I don't think so. It seems much more in keeping with who Josiah is, with what we've seen of him, to conclude that he believes he is relying wholly on the Lord. He's relying on God to win his battles. He has stood up against the Egyptian army. Surely God will reward this courage. 
and this faith in him. No other alliances. Now, we don't know. Maybe there's something going on between him and Babylon, but it's not stated in the text, so it's really irrelevant. He seems to believe that standing on his own against this enemy, he is doing what God wants him to do and relying on God alone. So despite Nico's warning, verse 22, Josiah did not turn away from Nico. Rather, he disguised himself in order to fight with him. That is, he, he takes on the garb of a regular soldier and joins in among his troops to fight against the king so that he wouldn't be identified as the king. Everybody go after him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. Now there the narrator speaks. This isn't just in the mouth of Nico saying, God told me to destroy you. Now the narrator, the biblical narrator, is speaking. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. But he came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. So, if you can understand, we're, we're kind of pointing to the northeast here from our position. But he comes down through this pass, this Megiddo pass, seeking to make his way up to Carchemish, does the Pharaoh. And Josiah coming down the ridge that is, is further to the east, he swings back around, meets him there, and in this plain, the two armies clash. Josiah fighting on this plain of Megiddo. And what happens? Verse 23, the archer shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died. And was buried in the tombs of his fathers. That's not what we want to hear. It's just not what we want to hear. It's not supposed to go this way. This is, this is not supposed to happen. Josiah is not supposed to be dead. Not now in the prime of his life. This one who's loved God and served God and stood for God and in this battle trusted God. Now he's dead. It's a stunning development, and as we'll look here in a bit, Israel mourns bitterly. The key indicator as to how we should interpret Josiah's death is, for those that have biblical knowledge, a sense of deja vu right about now. Haven't I heard this story before? This sounds so familiar. The verbal and historical linkage between Josiah's death and the death of King Ahab in chapter 18 is unmistakable. And there's something going on here in the text. We can see on this chart, both kings disguise themselves so they can fight among their troops. I should say, first of all, remember, Ahab is a wicked king. He is about as godless as godless gets. Both he and Josiah, this good king, disguise themselves to fight among their, their own troops. Secondly, both Ahab and Josiah are mortally wounded by an 
by the arrow of an archer. And thirdly, both are quoted in the text declaring that they have been wounded. Then both are pulled from the battlefield and situated in a chariot. And then both die of their battle wounds. Now somebody could say, well, it's just a coincidence. After all, they are soldiers. Soldiers are going to die in the same way in certain battlefields. And I'm sure a lot of people died at the hands of archers. True. But let's remember how biblical narratives are put together. They are highly selective. When Hebrew narrators repeat material, it is seldom coincidental. We are intended to take careful notice of the parallels. He did not need to quote one or both of the kings, the writer. He did not need to include all of these details. Many times all we find is that a person dies. But with all of these details, there is clear, purposeful linkage between the good king Josiah and the evil king Ahab. So the author is subtly saying that Josiah lived as a godly and upright king. Unlike the wicked king Ahab, he served the Lord. But Josiah died in foolhardy self-dependence because he would not listen to the voice of God. And so he died just like Ahab. Josiah's death serves as a helpful warning to us as we relate to the Lord. His death warns us never to think that serving God faithfully renders us immune to the consequences of moral folly. It reminds us that God doesn't keep a record and grade on a curve so that if we've done a pretty good job for most of our life, we're somehow immune from tripping up and falling terribly. Serving God with zeal and experiencing His blessing does not render us invincible in the outworking of whatever we choose to do. By God's grace, we will press forward with courageous resolve. It's not the courage of Josiah that's the problem here. It's not the desire that he has to serve the Lord. It's not the confidence that he has in God to deliver him from this terrible army. That's not the problem. The problem is we must never permit ourselves to live independently of God. And that's what he did. We can serve God faithfully. We can even develop something of a track record of trust and dependence upon him and then think that we can run our own show. Because of what we've accomplished, we trust in ourselves and we don't need God's Word. This is what Josiah did, and this is what he teaches us. We are at all times dependent upon God's Word. Never can a faithful track record excuse disregard for the will of God. It would seem indeed that many discredited pastors capsize their ministries by failing to heed this very warning from Josiah's life, as do many churches. Never until our eyes are shut in death are we free from the wonderful grace of God's Word 
and we thank him for it. We trust his word at all times to the end. Josiah's foolish overreaching, his failure to seek the Lord, cost him his life. And thus it cost Israel her faithful and capable king. This does not mean Josiah's lifelong fidelity to God and skillful service to the nation was deleted from anyone's memory, not by any means. To the contrary, the text moves at the middle of verse 24, which is where I'd like to divide the verse, to the response to Josiah's death. We have a description of his death to this point, and now we note that Israel mourns for and eulogizes her fallen king. Verse 24, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. There was an outpouring of grief for her fallen king. He was indeed a great man, and everyone recognized it. As did the great prophet Jeremiah, verse 25. He also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. This book of laments, we do not have it ourselves now. It is no longer extant. But in this book, there is a mandatory record of celebrating the legacy of Josiah. I mean, that's greatness. It's high high commendation that that Jeremiah would be recorded as having celebrated the greatness of this king. A national lament. We don't really have cultural context to understand such a response to one's death, but it is very significant. It is high praise, reminding us of David's grief when Jonathan fell in battle. This lament for Josiah is real. And he is remembered. When the faithful, biblically ordered Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle died at age 84 in June of 1900, he was noted to be at his funeral a singularly faithful man to the Scriptures. Canon Hobson declared at that funeral, at Ryle's funeral, that few men, I quote, few men in the 19th century did so much for God, for truth, and for righteousness among the English-speaking race. More simply put, Ryle's successor said this, he was a man who lived so as to be missed. He was a man who lived so as to be missed. There was grief in that chapel as there was grief in Jerusalem because a truly great man of God had died. Josiah was missed. And I think as a general rule, the more self-dependent, self-gratifying, and self-glorifying our lives, the less people will care when we are gone. The end goal is not to make people miss us, of course. That's ridiculous. The goal is to so live that life itself is Christ and dying is gain. When we live a Christ-centered rather than a self-centered life and serve the cause of the gospel, we leave behind a legacy that matters whether we're king or pauper. What matters is that our small lights draw attention to the great light who is God Himself. 
Josiah did that, while at the same time reminding us that he was not the ultimate king, was he? At the end, on this fateful day, he did not heed the voice of God. Now, verse 26, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds. Again, not his self-righteousness, not how he earned his salvation to heaven, but his good deeds in behalf of the nation as God's representative king, according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last. Behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. There are laments to him that the nation was required to remember and recite, to sing, remember this great king. And his annals are in, uh, his acts are in the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was a great king. And widely remembered, and in the books of the Chronicles, elevated to the level, in some respects, of David and Solomon. One who you remember, as we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, who le- kept Passover alive, such that three kings after and 70 years of captivity, the Israelites came back and established Passover in the land. This was a great king, a truly great king whose legacy we should celebrate. He was among the greatest, the most faithful of kings, standing on this level with the greatest kings of Israel. But, as, but this then, as we think on his greatness as well as his flaws, this brings us back by way of illustration to Jean-Baptiste Massillon, who was chosen to deliver Louis the Great's funeral oration. How does one eulogize an absolute monarch widely regarded as the greatest man on the earth? What do you say as a preacher of the gospel? Louis' funeral was held at the magnificent Parisian Cathedral of Notre Dame. The nave, the auditorium, was lit by a single candle placed next to Louis' ornate coffin. Massillon walked ritually, slowly, up to that candle and extinguished its single thin flame, symbolically say that the great monarch was gone. The hushed crowd sat expectantly in that darkened room, and Massillon paused to heighten the anticipation. What words would this humble preacher marshal to exalt the greatness of the greatest of all absolute monarchs? He pierced the silence with these words. Only God is great. Only God is great. In a sense, that is what the chronicler is telling us over and over again. All flesh is as grass, And all its glory is like the flower of the field which withers and fades away. There were indeed great kings in Judah. There were indeed good kings in Judah. 
but they were all flawed, including Josiah. God's covenant with David to seat on his throne a king who would rule forever leaves us yearning for that king as this last righteous king of Judah passes away. As Josiah is laid to rest, we thirst for the king who will reign forever because he earns no wages of sin. It is finally over six centuries after Josiah's death that a young man and his family move into a town across the Jezreel Valley within walking distance of Megiddo Valley and Pass. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's of the lineage of King David. He's a son of Josiah. The Jesus of Nazareth who lives in this place does not falter in life, but he fulfills all righteousness. As this son of David, to whom all history pointed, arrives on the scene, he not only recovers a love for God's Word, he personifies it such that John, his apostle, says that he was the Word in flesh. He not only keeps Passover, he becomes the Passover lamb, sacrificing his life, dying in the place of sinners so that his blood atones for those who trust his salvation. And he remains obedient to God, not only in life, he remains obedient to God in death, paying the penalty of our sin. Having conquered death by his resurrection from the grave, King Jesus will one day return to this earth. And one place that he will return is called Armageddon, which means the hill of of Megiddo. Revelation 16 and verse 16, here Jesus will stand against the raging powers of this fallen and hopeless world. He will stand against the armies of the world that long to magnify man and he will say, you will not pass. And there in the valley where Josiah foolishly died, Jesus will battle the world powers that are inspired by Satan. And according to Revelation 17 and verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called the chosen and faithful. When it comes to kings... May we learn that only Jesus is great. And may we all recognize that there is nothing more important in life or in death than to know that He rules on heaven's throne, that He is returning, and that He rules my heart. That He is my King and my Lord. And that I am part of His chosen and faithful. May we recognize there is nothing more important in this life or in death than to know that you are God's chosen child and you can know this. By faith in His work, dying in your place 
as the perfect sacrifice for sin, we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven and we have a righteous standing before God, not on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So that being rescued from our sin, he puts us on the path to live a life of righteousness and to meet him in eternity justified by the work of this king. Living faithfully then, we await the return of the risen, reigning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, again, it is so clear to us that you wrote this book. As you weave together and patch together and paint the picture through the centuries, we see that you've had the script in hand from the very beginning. So we sung of that today. Before the foundations of the earth were called into existence. You were. You live in an eternal now. And you have from eternity past scripted the text of human history. We praise you as we celebrate our Savior and His risen power in His return. We pray, God, that you'd bring Him quickly, that you'd permit that day to come but until then that we would be faithful, constant, relying upon you for our righteousness, but living lives of faithfulness and honor. Not so that our names are praised at any particular time in this life or after we're gone, but that we might know the joy of walking in fellowship with you and that we might be faithful to who you are as our light and our salvation and our hope. And we do pray for that day when Christ will come and will stand at Armageddon against the powers of this world and will defeat them and establish His millennial kingdom. This is how we see it, how we understand it. And Lord, with all our confusion and what we don't understand, we know that Christ is risen and coming again. And I pray that there would be a response in each heart that is heeding this word today to respond to who Jesus is and what you are teaching us by your Spirit that we might live lives that are great in the best sense of the word. A greatness that reflects that only God is great. A joy and a gladness that revels in the truth that Christ is crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. May we center our hope there to the glory of your name. Through Jesus we pray.